turn in your Bible to Malachi, please. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. During this week, we will be studying from this book. We began in Training Union. Those of you who listened to the Anchored broadcast on Sunday morning will know that we started this study in the Anchored broadcast last Sunday morning and continued it today. And tonight we come to the just a brief, you might say, a preview of the book of Malachi with the theme, Rekindling the Fire. Rekindling the Fire. And the fire refers to the fire in our bones, the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fire of judgment upon sin, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for what we have already heard and felt and experienced and reacted to in this meeting tonight. For the choir and the sounds of heaven and the love of God and the meeting, the impact of God's people coming together and all the visitors who are here. Lord, open now the Word. We thank You that even on a cold, snowy day, there are people who just love God. And I want to go to God's house, not because it's pretty and nice, but because they just love Him and they want to be here. Thank You for them, Lord. Thank You for giving safety to Your people in this church during these past weeks and days. And we praise You tonight for what You will do in this service. We ask in Christ's precious name, Amen. amen. We begin with chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Last Wednesday night we mentioned this verse and mentioned the fact that the word of the Lord is not always a joy. Sometimes it's a burden. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't make a joy in your life and it doesn't ultimately produce joy, but the word of the Lord sometimes is a terrible burden. You remember Jeremiah preached and he said the word of God was in my bones like a fire. I thought I'd quit. I just thought I'll just throw in the towel. I've been persecuted, been put in dungeons, and they threatened to kill me, and I think I'll just quit. But he said, the Word of God was in my bones like a fire. There was a burden there that I could not quit. Now, the burden of the Word of the Lord that came to Malachi was a little bit different. He was ministering in about the year 450 B.C. Ezra and Nehemiah <clears throat> had led the people of God back from Babylonian and Persian captivity back to Jerusalem. The walls had been rebuilt. The temple had been rebuilt. And uh, the people of God had heard all the great prophecies concerning what would happen when the people of God got back home. And they thought, surely, what Isaiah was preaching and what Jeremiah had preached, and what Moses had said, and what Samuel had said, and what others had said would, would, would come to pass immediately. And so for 10 years, they kept things going hot. For 20 years, they kept things going in a warm way. And then, some began to say, well, where is the promise of His coming? Everything's just like it always was. And it isn't so good. And their spiritual life began to go downhill. And right in the middle of that, three things took place. The people and priests began to neglect the temple. 
They began to neglect church. They began to neglect their own spiritual lives. Secondly, they had less concern about maintaining God's covenant relationship. So therefore, their concern about marriage went by the wayside. They forgot that God had said there not to be any unholy alliances in marriage between God's people and the world's people. And they just scrapped that. And God's people began to marry heathen and people that had no faith. And the third result, the nation's moral and ethical standards began to slump and sorcery, adultery, and all kinds of sins slipped in to the people of God. And it was in a time like that, Malachi came to the front and he said, the burden of the word. What I'm going to preach is not going to make some of you happy. That's what Malachi was saying, and I probably ought to say that to you tonight too. The burden of the word of the Lord. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, said the Lord, yet I loved Jacob? And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the jackals of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus saith the Lord of hosts. They will build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. <clears throat> now this is Edom. And God is saying through Malachi, I love you. But the people are saying, we don't know whether you love us or not, God. Prove that you love us. How, how can we really know for sure that you love us? And so God's answer is, well, was not Jacob Esau's brother? And I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau. Now that perked the ears of those Jews up. You see, the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And you remember, if you've been reading the Bible through in the book of Genesis, you remember what's happened between Esau and Jacob. Jacob was a supplanter, and he stole the birthright of Esau. And then later he stole his brother's blessing. Jacob wasn't really much of a character. In his youth, he was a, you think of all the sins in your youth, Jacob had them quadrupled in his youth. Now God says, uh, hey Jews, Israel, I've loved you. Have you loved us? Doesn't look to me like you've loved us very much. Look at all the afflictions we've had. Look, we went into 70 years captivity. Look at all the problems and they forgot that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Man. Just because God loves you doesn't mean you're not going to have any afflictions. Man. Just because you're saved and you're the people of God does not mean that you're exempt from the trials Man. and the hurts and the temptations and the frustrations and the defeats that come into people's lives. Man. And they came into the life of Israel.
And so God said, well, I've loved you. And they said, have you loved us? Well, did not I love Jacob and hate Esau? I want to talk about that for just a moment. What does it mean that God loved Jacob and hated Esau? Does God hate? What is the chief emotion in the heart of God? Let's say it. Love. You can't read very far in the Bible without knowing that. You read from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, and over and over again, what Janice sang tonight is true. The love of God is portrayed and demonstrated. So what does God mean when he says, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau? I think to get a little bit of understanding of that, look in your Bible at Luke chapter 14 for a moment. Luke chapter 14. Open your Bibles to that passage of Scripture. In Luke 14, beginning in verse 25, Jesus has just told the story of the man who made a great supper, and at supper time bade many to come. His servants went out and gave the invitation, and they all with one consent began to make excuse. And God began to take seriously the excuses. Don't ever forget, you offer God some excuse. And because he is long-suffering and patient, he may invite you again and again and again. But every time you make an excuse, you are treading dangerous territory because there comes a day when God takes you seriously and he says, okay, that's the way you feel about it, all right. Go on and do what you want. And that's what happened in this passage. The Lord said, none of those men that were invited shall come to my supper. And then he said a remarkable thing in verse 25, and there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What did Jesus mean by that? Would the Lord ever tell us to hate our mother, hate our wife, hate our children? You have to read that very, very carefully to find out what the Lord is saying. To to understand and interpret Scripture, you must interpret in Scripture, you must compare Scripture with Scripture. And when you come up with some kind of a conclusion that says, well, this must mean this, and yet it's totally out of the principle with everything else the Bible says, you know you've got the wrong interpretation. And so when you come to that, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, when you come to me, your love for me must be so much higher than your love for anybody else that in comparison it will look like you hate your mother or your father or your children. Now folks, that's the reason that believers need to marry believers. You marry, a believer, you marry an unbeliever and then you get serious about Jesus and you try to follow him and work for him and you do what the Bible says and your wife or your husband will say, you hate me. You always go into church. You love that church more than you love me. Why, you love those people out there that you visit on the bus route more than you love me. And you will face that. 
because you've married somebody who has not put Christ first. And they're saying, you hate me and you love God. And Jesus said, that's the way it'll be. And your love for me must be so much greater than your love for anyone else that in comparison it will look like hate. Most of you, many of you have heard this story. Dr. Robert G. Lee loved his wife very, very much. He asked her to, his girlfriend, he asked her to marry him. He first heard her sing. He first met her when she was singing Whispering Hope. And Dr. Lee said, my heart whispered hope. (laughs) And he asked her to marry him. And on their first night, he said to his wife, Honey, you'll always have to take second place in my life. And her mouth flew open. She said, what do you mean? She said, I, he said, I love somebody more than I love you. Well, she said, tell me what you mean. He said, I love Jesus with all my heart. Amen. And he'll always have to be first in my life. And Mrs. Lee, a vibrant Christian, turned to her husband and said, Honey, I'm glad you feel that way because with your attitude like that, you'll be the kind of husband to me I need. Amen. Now this was reflected over and over again through the years. Dr. Lee was with us one weekend. His wife, he told me privately, was very sick. He said, I don't know, humanly speaking, whether I should have left her. She died not long after that. He said, I promised Jesus when he saved me that nobody would ever be in front of Jesus in my life. He said, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to preach. I've talked to her on the phone two or three times this weekend. He said, don't say anything to the people. But I wonder if tonight after church, you'd take me to Nashville and let me catch a late flight. I took him to Nashville. He stayed up all night long so he could get back to the bedside of his beloved wife. But he said, she has to take second place to my preaching. I told you you might not like this sermon. Malachi said, you probably won't like what I'm going to preach. He said, did not not God love Jacob and hate Esau? What does that mean? It does not mean that God hated Esau. It meant that God's love for Jacob because Jacob had a purpose and, a, and was, was, the, was the recipient of a choice in God's heart that through him all the nations of the earth should be blessed, that God loved Jacob. And in comparison, it looked like he hated Esau. They didn't understand that. And so, look at verse 4. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, we will return and build the desolate places Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They will build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. You see, what was happening here, the people of Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, when the Babylonians came in to take over the children of Israel to take them to bondage, here were the Edomites over here standing on the other side. And the entire book of Obadiah was written as a condemnation of Edom because they participated in helping the Babylonians conquer and divide and take into captivity the Israelites. And God never forgot that. 
Listen, there's some sins that you can sin against God. And unless you repent of it, God will remember it. Edom never repented. Esau never repented. As, a, as an evidence of that, when, when Esau heard that his dad and mother wanted Jacob to marry somebody in the faith, Esau purposely said, I'm going over and marry some of the children of Ishmael because it'll displease my mother. <laughs> Do you ever hear of these men, these guys, these young upstarts that don't like their mothers? Whatever mother wants is what I don't want. That was Esau. Oh, mom, you're old-fashioned. You think I ought not to date this girl. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just old-fashioned. You're out of your mind. Mom said, I want you to take a wife of the children of faith. Man. Jacob did it. Esau didn't. I could give you illustration after illustration in the life of Esau. Why that scripture is true. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Not because God hated Esau. God's chief expression is love. But Esau would not. He would not. He would not. I want to give an illustration of this tonight. <coughs> I'm going to ask a couple of people to come and help me. Philip, come up here a minute, will you? And Jeff, you come up here and help me. Thank you. This is unrehearsed. Come on up here on the platform, please. Now, I invite Philip and Jeff to go with me to Jerusalem. I said, I want you to go. Meet me at 5 o'clock in the morning. All right. 5 o'clock in the morning, Philip's there. Jeff's home sleeping. I say, come on, Philip, let's go. Now we got to wait for Jeff. Come on, let's go. Now I'm going to ask you, do I hate him? No. Does it look like it? <coughs> Looks like I've just left him standing. Why? Because he refused. Jeff, I love you. <laughs> go sit down. Thank you, Philip and Jeff. I want to tell you, that's the way with God. God is long-suffering and patient, and he gives opportunity and time after time and call after call. And Esau said, no, no, I'll not do it. I'll do whatever I want to. And he went out and married out of the faith. And much of what Malachi is talking about in here deals with Esau's sin. The problem is the Jacobites, the Israelites, eventually started doing the same thing. And we can't, don't have time to get into that tonight. Now, Malachi, right in the middle of all this, is holding up the fact that down the years there's going to be a payday someday. There's going to be a judgment. Turn a couple of pages to, to Malachi 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? There are seven, seven events mentioned in this chapter that occur at the coming of our Lord. I just want to enumerate them. You might want to write them in your Bible. Number one, I will send my messenger before he comes. Amen. Now in the first coming of Jesus, that was John the Baptist. Jesus said it. 
In the second coming of Jesus, it's the gospel being preached for a witness around the world. I will send my messenger. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what's going on right now. There's not a land, there's not a place on the globe where the Word of God is not being heralded and there's some faithful Bible preachers who are saying, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. And that's what Malachi was saying. And that's what they're going to say at the end. Number two, And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come. The Lord is coming the second time. He's coming in the air for His own, the rapture. And those of us who are caught up will have to face the judgment seat of Christ. And John says, I beseech you, I beg you to walk before him so you'll not be ashamed before him at his coming. Thirdly, look in verse 2. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. When he comes, he will refine. He will purify. There's going to be a time of refinement. The and just preceding his coming, there's going to be a refinement of the Lord's church. The cold will get over here and the hot will get over here and they won't like each other and there may be divisions. And there's going to be a spiritual upsurge in the hearts of those who love the Lord and the cold are going to get deader and deader and deader and join the National Council and the Federal Council of Churches. Fourthly, look at verse 3. And he shall sit like a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them like gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. There's going to be a purification. I long for that day. Oh, Paul said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Do you ever get tired of all the limitations and all the temptations and all the lusts and all the appetites and all the disillusionments and all the depressions that come to this body in which we live. Amen. There's coming a day when that will all be purified. Look at verse 5. And I will be a swift witness. I will be a swift witness against sin. Look at the, he lists seven sins. Sorcery. I beg of you, don't look at those newspaper columns that deal with astrology and all of that and the signs and the zodiac and try to figure out your life by that. Don't go to the palm readers. They're all from the devil. That's not from God at all. And against the adulterers. We're living in an adulterous age when there's husband and wife swapping and people are not true to their vows and they think nobody will ever know but God knows. We're living in an age of premarital sex. When young people growing up with all that hot surge of sex flowing in their life when they're 15, 16, and 17, and 18, and they think they must experiment with it. God says that's adultery. And against false swearers telling lies. Some people don't know when to tell the truth. They don't know when to, they've told lies so many times they don't know the truth anymore. It's an awful thing to get in a position where people don't know whether they can trust you or not. You stand up and say something, well, I don't really know whether he's telling the truth or not. It may be just another lie. And God says, I'm going to have swift judgment against that. And those who oppress the hireling in his wages, they do not give fair wages. 
Now, I think wages have to be anchored to profits. And I know this is maybe a little bit beyond the scope of my message tonight. But if I'm a businessman and I make $100 a week, obviously, that's all the profit I make. I can't hire somebody to come in and help me and pay him $150 a week or I'll be broke. But if I make $10,000 a week and I hire somebody and pay them $100, that's wrong. Amen. That's wickedness. That's sin. And God says, I'm going to bring a strong rebuke against that. Amen. Oppressing people and their wages. You see, the Word of God is practical. Amen. And before the Lord comes, and when He comes, there's going to be an evening up time. Some of you have worked for practically nothing. Out of sac I think of our school teachers at Anchor. God bless you. I want to guarantee you, if we ever get bigger incomes, you'll get a bigger income. You just don't have any imagination how barely we scrape by. <laughs> Some people think this church is rich. Thank God for the sacrificial efforts that put this beautiful red carpet on the floor, but it was sacrifice all the way. But I want to tell you, God says there's a practical application to the Word of God. And if you are hiring people and you are paying less than the right wage, God says there's going to be an evening up time on that. And the widow and the fatherless, not treating them right, oppressing them. You know, there's something radically mixed up about when the government gets all involved in the Medicare and the welfare programs and, and they have just no heart at all, just, just a cold old rule. And here's somebody in the hospital, they're about to die, and somebody from Louisville or Lexington says to a doctor, can't keep that one in the hospital any longer, put them out, put them somewhere, nursing home or home or somewhere, and they go out and they die the next day. There's something wrong with that. Amen. And I want to tell you, God will bring judgment. There's something wrong with that kind of no heart. Man, right. And it isn't the doctor's fault. Doctors get the brunt of a lot of it. It isn't their fault. Somebody up there making some rules that are wrong. And they turn aside the sojourner from his right. In other words, somebody that's a stranger comes and, and they don't deal righteously with that stranger. And they fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Now what am I saying? I'm saying that when Jesus comes, all of this catalog of sins will be dealt with. There's going to be an evening up time. There have been murders committed in this city and nobody knows who did it. Just this last week, the whole world was turned toward Minneapolis and there was some guy, I guess a crazy guy in Mississippi who said he took some corpse up there and buried it in Minneapolis in a cemetery when he was out of prison for 79 days. And so they nicely took him up there and they went all over Minneapolis in a goose chase and didn't find the corpse. I want to tell you, God knows where that corpse is. God knows where that heiress is buried. God knows who killed him. And somebody may think they've gotten by with that. But when the Lord comes, that's what Malachi is saying, Behold, I'll send my messenger, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come. And when he has come, he will reprove the world in, these, in regard to these sins. You're not going to get by with it forever. Have you been wronged? 
one day it'll get righted. Man. Somebody sin against your marriage vows? Someday it'll get righted. Somebody crush you and hurt you? Someday they'll get righted. They sang tonight, we shall behold him. You know, I want to tell you, let's live lives that honor our Lord. Amen. So we look forward to his coming. We don't have to be scared to death that Jesus may come. I talked to a person the other day who had heard a message on the coming of the Lord. and They said, you know, I'm just scared to death. That scares me. I, the way they put it, they said, that spooks me. <laughs> I said, you wouldn't be spooked if you'd repent and turn to Christ. Amen. Because the message we preached this morning is just as true as the message I'm preaching tonight. We are justified by faith Amen. through grace. Amen. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Amen. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Oh, how good to know that Jesus is the answer. Amen. I don't have time to go any further tonight, but I want to guarantee you Christ is coming. Amen. Jesus is coming. And oh, how beautiful it is. Don't miss tomorrow night as we get into the deeper studies of the Scripture. But suffice it tonight to say, if you're here and you have never been saved, you do not know Christ, may I plead with you and urge you to come to Christ Amen. and have your sin debt canceled under the blood before you have to face it in judgment. You'll either face it in judgment or you'll come to Christ in repentance. And the problem is we do not know when you're going to die nor when the Lord is coming. When you die, it's settled forever. Amen. I had the funeral not long ago of a lost man. You think that doesn't hurt? I couldn't bring any comfort and strength. I'd talk to that man. He, he said no to the Lord over and over again. I'm going to have the funeral tomorrow of a saved lady. I'll never forget. I'm so glad Ms. Bodkin told us that story. She said, oh no, honey, I'm not Christian. I went to church. Just because I went to church didn't make me a Christian. I need to be, I need to be saved. Amen. And she gave her heart to Christ. You can do that tonight. Jesus can come into your life and forgive you and save you and cleanse you. And then you'll know how to take the Lord's Supper. You see, as we take the Lord's Supper, the cup reminds us of the blood of Christ. The bread reminds us of His broken body. And He did that for us. Amen. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Our Father, we thank You for this privilege of preaching the Word. Thank You for Your dear people who have heard tonight and listened. We pray that...